God. That's the source of, of all wisdom. But uh, this, this series is really about uh, really understanding uh, what it means to say that God is the God who speaks and we are a people who hear him speak to us. And our passage this morning is uh, really pivotal for understanding uh, how Jesus' apostles understood the nature of prophecy and therefore how we should understand prophecy. Peter was writing to Christians uh, towards the end of the 60s, so about 40 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And some people were beginning to wonder if his promises to return were going to come to pass. Many of the first Christians earnestly believed that Jesus would return within their lifetime. But now, as they were getting older and, and some of them were dying, they were hearing people beginning to cast doubt on those promises. And by implication then, the casting doubt on the gospel itself What they reasoned was, well, if Jesus promised that he would return and he hasn't, then how can we be sure that the gospel message itself, the message of his life, death and resurrection is true? Now, in this letter, Peter is calling his readers to be patient because God is patient. Here's what he says in chapter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So rather than allowing their experience Jesus hasn't returned yet, to interpret the promises of Scripture, they were to allow the Scripture to interpret their experience. See, what Peter says here isn't a new idea. It's not a special revelation that he'd only just received from the Spirit. What he's doing here is he's pulling together a number of scriptural truths. Psalm 90 verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Isaiah 30 verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And then Ezekiel 18 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? See, Peter is simply saying, remember what the scriptures have told you and use that to interpret your wondering about why Jesus hasn't yet returned. It's because God doesn't want people to perish. God is being patient. He's being gracious. Uh, He's not sending the son back straight away because he is planning to bring many more people into his kingdom. Peter clearly believed that the scriptures, for them the Old Testament, were still relevant. But not only relevant, 
they were the means by which God was still speaking to his people. And this is the assurance he wants to give to his readers, that they can be sure in the truth and the power of the gospel they've heard because of the active nature of God's living word. Let's have a look at the context leading up to our passage to see how uh, he brings that case. Peter begins his letter by saying, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And he then goes on to speak of God's precious and great promises through which we have become partakers in the divine nature. What an incredibly high calling we have in Christ. What dignity, what honour he's bestowed on us by his grace. Partakers of the divine nature through his precious and great promises. Peter then calls on us to express this high calling in how we live. For our faith to be expressed in things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection and love. These are the things that prove our faith to be genuine and alive and they give us an assurance of our calling and election. Now, Peter is expecting to die soon. He says in verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Jesus had told Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John says, this, is, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter, uh, Jesus said to that said that to Peter just after he'd said three times to him, do you love me? And three times to him, feed my sheep. So Peter has taken this call of Jesus seriously. He's still shepherding the flock even while he's in prison awaiting his execution. And he's doing that by writing his letters to the churches. So he says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. What are these things? Well, the the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel uh, that you believed. Peter wants us to be certain that the gospel we've heard is true and reliable, that our faith in Jesus as the crucified and risen Son of God is not in vain. He wants us to be certain that seeking to serve and to testify to Jesus, even to the point of death, as Peter himself has done, is a noble task, not a foolish one. So, we see in verse 16, the gospel is not a cleverly devised myth. The ancient world was full of myths, 
epic tales of uh, gods and demigods and superhumans uh, going on their adventures. Uh, and these, these myths were told with the aim of securing people's worship and loyalty, often to the, uh, those who were in power. These myths played on the fears of uh, the supernatural and people's aspirations to, to have something better than all of the struggles uh, that they were experiencing in this life. Now, the Gospel offered that too, but not on the basis of made-up, unverifiable stories of what happened in the dim, distant past or in some other spiritual realm. No, Peter assures us that he was an eyewitness of his majesty. And notice he's not making this claim on his own. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, it's not just me. You can speak to any of the other apostles. They saw what I saw. John was thinking the same thing when he wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. So the Gospel isn't merely a a philosophy. It's not just an idea It's a record, it's the announcements of an actual historical event. The concrete action of the Father causing his kingdom to break in and to bear down on this world in his Son. This actually happened, Peter is saying. We're simply telling you what we've seen and heard. So as a consequence, he says, we... Uh, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Uh, The wording there in uh, that version I've got up there is slightly different. Um, What the original is saying is this prophetic word, uh, in light of what Jesus has done, is confirmed, is more sure. What he's referring to here when he says prophetic word is the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Jews and of the first Christians before all of the New Testament documents were written. The reason we know he means this is because in his first letter he said concerning this salvation, the gospel, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
So this prophetic word is the promises spoken by the prophets in preparation for the coming of Jesus. And these promises were written down for the benefit of future generations. The apostles then announced the fulfilment of these promises in Jesus. And ultimately the prophets and the apostles were mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit himself. The sign of a true prophet is that what they predict comes to pass. The fact that Jesus fitted so many of the Old Testament prophecies not only demonstrates his identity as the Messiah, but it, it, um, it indicates the truthfulness, uh, the truth of the Old Testament prophets because what they said did come to pass. So we have a sure word. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles bring us to the central foundation, the central stone in the foundation of our faith, Jesus Christ. Both testify to him. So because we have this word confirmed, we will do well to pay attention to it. In modern terms, Peter is saying, keep reading your Bible because you know that the words in it are trustworthy and true. And more than just true, they are words given by the Holy Spirit himself. There's an unbreakable link between the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the work of all three members of the Trinity. In the creation account, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then the next sentence, and God said, let there be light. The Spirit was poised and ready for this creative word that would bring the universe into existence out of nothing. John's Gospel tells us that this word that was in the beginning was with God and the word was God and is the one through whom all things were made and who then stepped into creation as the word made flesh. So these two verses are the triune God in action. Creation was a deeply personal and relational thing. It wasn't merely God calling out a magic word into the nothingness of the darkness like a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. The speaking that took place was a conversation between Father, Son and Spirit. The Father commands and he makes known his plan. The Son who delights to do the Father's will, acts in full harmony with and in obedience to the Father's word and the Son becomes the mediator between God and creation and the Spirit hovers over it all and he brings the work of the Father and the Son to completion. He brings it to its goal of Sabbath rest. God's speaking isn't just mere words. It's self-disclosure. It's the giving of himself. 
It's always relational. God always speaks to someone. Before creation, that communication was happening between the three persons of the Trinity. Since creation, God has opened up his communication to include us so that we can hear God speak and we can speak to him. So we can't hear the powerful word of the Father without the mediating work of the Son or without the perfecting, powerful work of the Spirit. Our communion is with all three persons. And so likewise, any encounter with the true and living God, the triune God, will always be by his word because that is how he does everything. We can't know God unless he speaks and we can only know him because he is the God who speaks. So the prophetic word that Peter tells us we have fully confirmed was much more than simply dictated words, more than just like a document downloaded from the server of heaven into our brains. His words are the powerful working of the Spirit to bring us into an encounter with God in his fullness. The Old Testament prophets had real encounters with the Lord. They saw his glory on the mountaintop, in the wilderness, in the temple. They were sent by the Lord with a living and active word. As they spoke, the Lord was speaking, so they could say confidently, thus says the Lord. There are more than 3,800 references in the Old Testament of God speaking to or through the prophets. That's about a hundred per book. The people of God lived and breathed and basked in the word of God. Do you you ever feel a yearning, a longing to hear the voice of God, to to know the, the power of the Spirit, to have your mind and heart aligned with the will of the Father, to feel the presence of Christ in his full power and authority. Well, this yearning is a good yearning because a human being is constituted to hear the word of God, to hear him as he speaks. The breath of life that God breathed into Adam that made him a living soul, that was the work of the Spirit who was hovering over creation at the beginning. It's his life-giving power. It's him bringing to completion the Father's word, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the Father spoke, the Spirit acted and brought to completion the Father's words. And then when the Father said, let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock and every creeping thing. Well, that was an authority that he gave to us that reflects the authority of the Son. And the Son has authority over creation because it was given to him by the Father and he exercises that authority as he hears the word of the Father and does his will. Our yearning to hear God is because we're made in his image. 
our ability to speak is because we're made in the image of the God who speaks. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We're inescapably shaped and influenced by words. What we hear determines what we believe and then what we believe will issue forth in what we speak. The reason it's true for the word of Christ is because that's the way we're created, to hear and believe and speak. But in the heart of our sinful rebellion against God, we have turned to images instead of words. Romans 1.22 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sorry, it's not all there. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When Eve was juggling what she knew was God's word given to her prophetically through Adam and what she saw when she looked at the tree, she went with what she saw, a tree that was a delight to the eyes instead of the command of God, the word of God that would give her life. That's why the Old Testament law is so strong in prohibiting the use of images. People are to be listening to God speak, not looking at images to know the truth and the wisdom they need to be his holy people and a light to the nations. Today our modern technology is allowing cultures across the world to become more and more image focused. Almost everyone owns a digital camera on their phone. We can take pictures whenever we like and they're instantly available for us to look at. It was unthinkable 100 years ago. And an interesting statistic, it would take a person an entire lifetime at least 82 years, non-stop, without any breaks, to watch all of the video content that is uploaded to YouTube in a single day. Isn't that astounding? In 1995, uh, an American marketing consultant called Michael Sack observed this trend in its early stages. As a marketer, he was chiefly concerned with how human beings communicate and especially how we communicate to convince another person that they really need to buy the product we're trying to sell them. Here's what he said, for Gen Xs, that's my generation, those who were born between the 60s and the 80s, for Gen X, the images have no symbolism, no moral value. They choose images for colour or movement or entertainment. Inanimate messages, anything other than person-to-person speech, lose value as you get younger in this culture. The media are flashing 2,000 images a day. They can't deal with it, so they ignore the images. And as a result, young people are a 100 times more sophisticated in handling images, but not in attributing significance to them. The young eat images like popcorn. Older adults eat them like a meal. Well, 25 years later, 
and Generation Z, those born between 1995 and 2012, I'm not sure who picked those dates, but uh, that's the generation of uh, my kids. They're continuing the trend. Another marketing consultant wrote just two years ago, Gen Z's attention spans are getting shorter as well, explaining their preference for video and images rather than text. They are the ultimate consumers of snack media. They communicate in bite sizes, punchy headlines or razor-sharp text resonate much better than lengthy chunks of words or long-winded passages. Now what that shows is uh, that feeding us on a steady diet of images is a great way to immunise yourself against being able to take in words. And that's the point of idolatry. Rather than listen to God's word, sinners prefer mute idols. Jeremiah, among um, other prophets, uses ironic humour when he uh, is showing up the foolishness of idolatry. For the customs of the people of vanity, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. We'd rather have a mute idol that looks pretty and makes us feel that we're somehow in connection with our God or our gods than to hear the confronting truth of God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What a terrifying thing to have the word of God strip you naked, to expose everything about you, unless, of course, you know the security and the comfort of having your sins forgiven and forgotten by God, of knowing that you have the perfect righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift, and you're clothed in him so that when the Father looks at you, he now sees you as he sees his own beloved, precious Son. Unless we know that truth by faith, we'll always be running and hiding, blocking our ears to God's word and trying to obscure it with our deaf and our mute idols. And here's the irony of idolatry. We think that idolatry is stopping us from being shaped and influenced by God's word or from any word. In fact, we're just simply listening to another word. Eve thought she would gain wisdom by taking from the tree that was a delight to her eyes, but she was simply listening to and believing and obeying the word of the devil. As we saw a few weeks ago, God's design for his word to be heard through a human being and then obeyed, that's prophecy, it was flipped on its head. So now 
human beings listen to the word of the devil and we speak that word to one another and then we go out and obey that. If we're not hearing the word of Christ, we'll be hearing someone else's word and that word will be producing faith in us of some sort but not faith in God. It'll be faith in our idols. So as Peter says, we must pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place to this prophetic word. It's the only source of light. Years ago I did a guided tour of some caves. I think it was the Janolan Caves in New South Wales. When we were at the deepest point Uh, several hundred metres below the surface of the ground, the guide told us that this far underground, uh, no natural sunlight can ever get in this far. And to prove his point, he turned off all the lights and it was pitch black. I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. Left in complete darkness for extended periods can cause people to lose their sense of direction and time and to even lose their minds. That's why solitary confinement in darkness is used as torture in wartime. So when this guy turned on his torch, just his little torch, it was a relief because there was a single reference point that grounded us in the midst of this absolute darkness. And that's how we must treat the word of God. There's no other source of light in this dark world. The same word that brought physical light into existence, the same word that is embodied in Jesus. Two verses after John's Gospel calls Jesus the Word, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we will do well to pay close attention to the prophetic word, the scriptures, because it's the way in which we come into contact with Christ, the word made flesh. There's no other way to know him apart from his word. As we saw, true faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Now this morning star is also a reference to Christ. It should really probably be there in capital letters. And we're told to pay attention to the prophetic word until the morning star rises in your hearts. Now some commentators take this to be a reference to his return. And Peter does say a lot about Jesus' second coming in this letter. But when Jesus returns, it won't be a rising in our hearts. He'll appear in the sky and every eye will see him. Peter says later in this letter, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. That's not rising in our hearts. I believe what Peter's describing here is not Jesus' second coming, but what takes place when we pay attention to the prophetic word when we read and hear it rightly, knowing that Christ himself is the focus and the goal of all the scriptures. When we seek him in the prophetic word, he will make sure that he is found by us. 
When we read or hear the scriptures, we must always first ask the question, how and where do I see Christ here? Jesus did that for his disciples, the the two that he met on the road to Emmaus before they realised it was him and they they told him all that had taken place uh, in uh, the events of that first Easter and then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A bit later in the day, after he had revealed his identity to them and then vanished from sight, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Isn't that interesting? They remarked not on the fact that they'd just eaten with the risen Jesus, but on how the opening up of the scriptures had set their hearts on fire. The morning star had risen in their hearts. Not only did they have an intellectual understanding of the scriptures, which is important, we've got our God-given brains to know words and their meanings, but their encounter with the risen Christ would continue even after his physical presence had gone because they realised that he would continue to be with them as the Spirit opened their eyes to the Word, to the Scriptures, to, to read them, to hear them, to believe them and to be transformed themselves into the image of Jesus. So, let us pay attention to the prophetic word. Let us do so as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And let us do so with confidence that Christ the morning star will rise and set our hearts on fire with the power and the grace of his presence. You don't need to wait for his second coming to get a glimpse of his glory. Just open the scriptures and hear him speak to you. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is living. Your word is you giving yourself to us. We thank you that uh, your son said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, and that he continues to be with us uh, by his spirit and through the power of his word. Father, ask that we all might have uh, that true faith, faith that comes from hearing the word of Christ, that the morning star might rise in our hearts, that the day might dawn in us now, even before we see him face to face, that we might have a love and a passion and a desire to hear you speak through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, We Cannot Live Without His Word.